they are usually referred to when there are issues, when the court is in trouble, where we cannot arrest people, when there are issues in also justifying very, very lengthy and sometimes quite expensive proceeding with no one there. So just waiting for someone either to you know, surrender or to be arrested. That's where then we start talking about an absentia proceeding. And I think that's wrong. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi. Hi, Janet. Well, Stephanie, we've got a topic for today. It's trials in absentia. Um, if you remember way back in August, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon finally issued its judgment on those accused with intent to carry out a terrorist attack and uh, four uh, related charges. I think it was four. Um, this was all going back to the massive explosion in 2005 in downtown Beirut that killed Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, more than 20 others, and wounded more than 200. But I don't think I've said in all that introduction why trials in absentia. So why? Well, one of the interesting things about the Lebanon tribunal or this trial and specifically was that the defense never got to speak to their clients. This was a trial in absentia, I guess, in a way in its, in its purest form, which we'll get to later as well. And I noted in a piece that I read that this was, quote, the first international tribunal since Nuremberg with a trial in absentia. Don't know if that's true or not, but you wrote it, Stephanie. Must be true if I wrote it. Well, there, there have been, of course, uh, domestic trials. Um, we are are having one in the Netherlands right at this moment with the MH17 case where uh, four suspects are being tried. It's a bit more tricky under Dutch law because none of the four suspects are there, but three are kind of officially in Dutch terms being tried in absentia. A fourth was also not present, but is being represented and is instructing counsel. Then under Dutch, uh, the Dutch system is not considered in absentia, but the, internationally they might have something to say about it. So uh, we decided to put this podcast together. Be clear, we're not going to deal with anything to do with the substance of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon judgment. We just wanted to talk about trials in absentia because, I mean, you know, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. And so we got two people, an academic and a practitioner, to talk to us about it and explain a bit because we keep yapping on about it in our cases. And I say a lot of things and I also wanted to get to the bottom of is what I'm saying actually true? Okay, so uh, let's start off by saying hi to Ilaria. Are you there, Ilaria? Hi, hello, hi. That's the voice of Ilaria Zvoli from the University of Leeds. Uh, I spotted uh, Ilaria live tweeting during the reading of this enormous Special Tribunal for Lebanon judgment summary. And then I checked her out and I realised she'd actually written a whole PhD on trials in absentias. And she was just being maybe a tad critical of the things that were going on. So I thought it would be fun to have her on. And we also invited Natalie von Witzinghauser. She's a Berlin-based international criminal lawyer. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. Hi. And she was a co-counsel at the Lebanon Tribunal, and she defended uh, Hussein Hassan Unesi at the at the tribunal in the trial. So she was actually a lawyer in an in absentia trial. I must admit, I didn't actually look much at what she was doing there, but I've come across Natalie and many other guises, including at the IBA war crimes conferences where she's been you know, in charge of panels and inviting people. So she's uh, somebody who appears in the Hague scene regularly. And so 
let's start a bit on trials in absentia. Oh, I want to I want to start because for me, okay. there's this big thing. I grew up with legal dramas, uh, things which are all based on the the UK and American systems. I mean, trials in absentia just don't exist. So my biggest question, which is not one that we told you about before, so this is just going to give you a hard time, both of you. Is it actually fair to ever have a trials in absentia? Doug Jacobs was telling Stephanie in this piece that she wrote way back, it's like having a boxing match without an opponent. And Stephanie was also telling me she's seen um, something likening it to putting a production of Hamlet on without the lead character. So... Okay, either of you, is it fair? Can I go first? With, from my academic perspective, I'd say. I, in my research, I've been like interviewing people that have been uh, defence counsels in, in absentia proceedings, in trials in absentia specifically, or they have been, like, for instance, legal representative of victims, prosecutors. So it really depends on the side that you take in the trial, I would say. So, and also it depends on the national jurisdiction you come from, because there are certain national jurisdictions that allow trials in absentia, they have no problems with them. Uh, and obviously they also give and provide procedural safeguards to the defendants and other jurisdictions then that are horrified from trials in absentia. So they don't really even want to talk about this uh, type of procedures. I think it all goes back to the really the, the approach you want to take with a criminal proceeding. So what you want to get out of a criminal proceeding, you want just to have someone that like, is sitting in the dark and then will be punished for the crimes. And so you need to have the person physically present in the courtroom. Or is it sufficient for you to get uh, the truth, the judicial truth of what happened, and then give the possibility to the victims to uh, get, for instance, reparations based on a conviction? of that person, even if the defendant was absent in the courtroom. So it really, I think, depends on what are the interests that are at stake and what we want to get out of the proceeding. And Natalie? Well, I will start my sentence like Ilaria and like many lawyers do, it depends. But I would, I would say it depends how you define uh, fair trial rights. Uh, if you see a, a difference uh, in, in the application of fair trial rights, uh, whether the, the accused is, is, is present uh, or not. And uh, I, I think or I know that there are lawyers who say that it can't be fair from the outset because you don't have the accused present, so he or she can't defend herself properly, can't give his or her own account can't give instructions to lawyers, uh, and so on and so forth. But very often, actually, during trials where the accused are present, they don't talk very much. And very often they get the instructions from their lawyers actually to keep silence, because this is the best for them. Uh, so, yeah, again, I mean, for me, it really depends on how do you define fair trial rights. And from my experience, I wouldn't say that our client at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon didn't have... A fair trial. But I know that other counsel would say differently. So really, it's also a question of, you know, it's, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very personal view on things, but I think it also depends from which legal system you come and uh, on a personal experience, let's put it this way. 
And Hilary, I touched on that a little bit from the which legal system. I guess the the difference there is either you have an adversarial system like the common law uh, system where you have the prosecution's vision and then you have to have the defense vision against it. And then uh, you're having a kind of one-sided conversation. But if you have the inquisitorial system that is civil law, like Germany and the Netherlands have, and this is what the Netherlands says in the MH17 case, it's about truth-finding and the um, defense is there to ensure that the rights uh, of the defendant are uh, safeguarded, but the prosecution also has uh, the duty to get to the truth more than an incentive to convict somebody. But I will also say, Stephanie, that actually I think that things are changing. So nowadays it's not anymore a question of civil law versus common law jurisdictions or inquisitorial versus adversarial, because there are countries, for instance, my own country, Italy, that have a system where we try to combine different aspects of the two criminal justice systems. So for instance, in Italy we're moving towards more an adversarial form of criminal justice, maintaining some aspects of the inquisitorial, so including the possibility to have proceedings that are done against an absent accused. However, for instance, in 2014, we had a huge change in this approach because we didn't have trials in absentia anymore, but we changed and we went for like having proceedings against an absent accused. So even the terminology is different. So we don't call it anymore contumacha, but we call it in absentia. And that change is not by chance. So it has been really the result of years and years of judgments that were um, issued against Italy and other countries of using trials in absentia by the European Court of Human Rights. Because we always have to keep in mind that we are not just talking about national jurisdictions that are isolated, but they are working within a system that is a supranational system where there are courts that are dealing with in absentia. Just to mention, the European Court of Human Rights never said that trials in absentia are per se wrong or they are unfair. It's how they are implemented into practice and whether there are specific procedural safeguards that can be used to guarantee the rights of the accused. If they are not, then there is unfairness. And so the, if we're talking about the European Council of Human Rights, what are then the circumstances in general, in which you can have a trial in absentia? Well, uh, you need to, first of all, have the possibility for the accused to be represented. So you need to have a legal counsel that is um, representing the accused. Second, the accused has to be notified. So he needs or she needs to be aware of the existence of a proceeding. You can't simply have a proceeding without notifying the accused. And then we need to also have circumstances that um, allow for a trial in absentia to be conducted when the accused re either, for instance, refuses to be present in the courtroom or he is disruptive, so he's disrupting the proceeding itself, or is waiving his right to be present. And these conditions are indeed also reflected at the international level, not just at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, obviously it's the tribunal that is doing trials in absentia at the moment, but also before other courts that do not um, theoretically allow trials in absentia, like for instance the ICC, but they allow for certain situations to happen, like to have absent accused under the new regulation and the new, new rules when there are these scenarios that happen. Disruptive uh, behavior, 
or waiving the right to be present or having accused that, for instance, are unfit or they are sick, they're ill, so they cannot be present in the courtroom. Or they simply have, for instance, public duties to perform, so they cannot be present in the courtroom. I think this raises all kinds of issues. I'd like to uh, ask uh, Natalie from a practical perspective. You must have taken a lot of care to try to be in touch with your client, try to let them know because otherwise it'd be unfair. You, you must have really thought through, Natalie, what it, what it would mean to, to represent somebody who couldn't be there. How, how did you approach it? I would say that at the end of the day, I approached it exactly in the same way than I approached any other case. The only difference, and it's a main difference, is that physically so nobody's sitting next to you. And there's nobody you have to, to explain anything to. There's nobody you, you get uh, information from. I would never use the term to get instructions from because I don't really considered to get instructions from my client, but it's more, you know, I'm instructing my client of what I think is the best in his or, or her uh, interest. And I, I think, you know, the, the, the main feature is that you're not representing a person, but you're representing the rights and the interests of a person. And actually, we always said that actually in the morning when we, uh, when we just introduced ourselves to the trial chamber, which you do every single morning, we always said this is counsel for so and so, representing the rights and the interests of so-and-so, and specifically not saying that we are representing the person. I don't know Mr. Anasi, I've never seen him, I've never talked to him, I'm not al I'm even allowed to contact him. I don't know if he knows me, uh, I don't know if he agrees with what his defense team, team did for him, I, I don't even know if, if, if he's alive. And, uh, and of course it, uh, it raises a lot of questions as a defense counsel on, on two uh, different levels, uh, at least for me. One is the procedural. So what, are, what do I do procedurally? The other one is the human aspect. Because, uh, I mean, I became defense counsel because I'm interested in human beings and in the interaction with human beings. And, and we had a situation in the courtroom where I said to the judges, if Mr. Donacy was sitting here, he wouldn't understand at all what's going on because uh, debates became so theoretical and, uh, and you really had the feeling that because of this trial in absentia that, that's been, that had been going on for so long, the lawyers in the courtroom actually lost the sense for what this was all about because at the end of the day, the decision, uh, if a person, a Mr. Onesi, uh, and others would be found guilty of the terrorist attack on former Prime Minister Hariri and others. And this is a danger I see in trials in absentia, that, yes, that the participants lose sight of what a criminal proceeding is really about. With regards to the procedural rights, the rules say that they apply mutatis mutandis to a, uh, a trial in absentia. Uh, and I would say that the legal tools I was able to work with were pretty much the same. Save the possibility, of course, to get information from my client. And, and that, of course, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit later, has an impact uh, on, on the presentation uh, of the defence and on the way yeah, to take decisions. I'm very curious about one thing you said. Well, you said a lot of very interesting things that I want to get back on. But my journalist brain kind of went, Wah? when you said, I wasn't allowed to contact the person I'm defending. How is that? I mean... That seems a weird thing. You would prefer to have a trial at least with somebody present or with somebody instructing their lawyer, I would say. I know that that's the way it works in the Dutch system. If you can get instructions even from a fugitive client, then 
that's better and not as much a trial in absentia. So was that a special STL measure? Was there a reason you weren't allowed to contact him? Well, that was actually a very uh, strict instruction by the defense office uh, that if ever we were contacted by our, by our clients, we would have had to divert him directly to the defense office. We were not allowed to be in contact uh, with our clients. And I think that the idea behind it is that it may, you know, if, if, if they turn up and are present, it may jeopardize their right uh, to a retrial. So we were supposed to defer immediately to the defense office to handle the situation. And, and indeed, it's completely absurd. And I'm not saying I wouldn't have been curious to talk to my client or to find him and to know anything about him. Uh, but, uh, but this is, you know, uh, yeah, the, the reason behind it, uh, that even if the phone call had ever happened, <laughs> uh, I would have had to hung up immediately and inform the defense office. One of the, the prerequisites I've understood for a trial in absentia from my understanding of the MH17 trial is that you have to have this right to retrial if somebody does show up. And, and Natalie mentioned that as well, that you couldn't have this contact uh, in case that he ever did show up and then could have a retrial. Can you explain this right to retrial and, and does it how it works, kind of? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon in particular, there is this, I would say, controversial right to retrial because this is when uh, another of the features of trials in absentia, as they are um, used and conducted at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, has been highly contested. Under Article 22, Paragraph 3 of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon Statute, we have the possibility for a defendant to have the right to retrial in a moment in which he didn't have either legal representation or he wasn't informed properly of the fact that there was a proceeding. And he doesn't obviously accept the judgment that for instance, has been just like um, issued uh, back in August. So that's the case where the defendant can ask for a retrial. The problem with the right to retrial is in light of the millions of dollars has been spent with this tribunal and also the lengthy proceeding is then the question is what is um, the purpose of the right to retrial? So what is the sense of having a trial in absentia in the first place if then an accused that shows up later on can ask for a retrial? I don't necessarily agree with this, to be honest. So the right to retrial has been considered by different human rights institutions, including the European Court of Human Rights, as a basic right that has to be recognized by, to someone that is tried in absentia. So it's something has to be there, otherwise we can have like unfairness. But at the same time, it is definitely controversial because in the view of those that are against trials in absentia, it can be seen as an obstacle to actually have a real like a trial and then the outcome that we want to have with trials in absentia because if we go back to like from scratch from to zero with a retrial what's the point of spending millions of dollars in something that in any case can be like start again and zeroed i i would say that the right to retrial is necessary we can't have trials in absentia without without a right to retrial however at the same time the right to, re to retrial has to be limited to specific circumstances. We can't have a right to retrial to any accused that asks for it. Okay, There had to be a circumstances as under the Statute of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon under which we then have the right to retrial. And this is important because again otherwise there's no point in having a trial in absentia in the first place. Uh, something that I would like to mention here that we haven't touched upon yet is that 
the trials in absentia that are conducted at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon are also quite peculiar because these type of trials are total trials in absentia. And that means that the accused have never been arrested, they've never been identified formally, they've never been brought to court. And this is not just like um, a theoretical division and, and distinction that we need to make as, from an academic perspective, but it's also, uh, it also has, I think, uh, very important practical consequences because other type of trials in absentia, they're not total trials in absentia, as the, at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, I have like less, fewer challenges to uh, defense counsels and anyone that is involved in the, in the proceeding because the accused has been brought to court. They have been identified. They had the possibility also to say, I don't want to be present, so to waive their rights. At the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, instead, we don't know whether these accused, for instance, are uh, prevented from appearing before the court by national authorities or someone else. So we don't really know what their intention is, whether they want to appear or not, whether they are absconding or not. This was simply a presumption that the tribunal based its decision on. So the presumption is that they are absconding and they don't want to be tried. But this is a quite peculiar type of trials in absentia. It's not always like that. Total trials in absentia are not the norm usually. We have partial trials in absentia and also trials in absentia themselves, again, to have like this categorization, are just one type of in absentia proceedings because we can have, and we had these at the ICTY for instance, pre-trial in absentia proceedings where we have a confirmation of charges in absentia and they are totally fine, they are accepted in international criminal justice. So there's no problem with them. Ilaria is definitely showing off the range of kind of probably what's all in her PhD. There's there's so much to unpack there, but just to let Natalie have another little word. Do you have any other experiences against which you have judged this, Natalie? You know, any other spaces in which you haven't had a client necessarily sort of right there next to you in court. How different did this feel from any other, any other spaces in which you've done this? Well, Germany doesn't have trials in absentia. They have it only for minor cases, you know, for offences and in certain, certain circumstances. You can have trials, something like trials in absentia, even though we don't uh, uh, use this term. So for me, actually, it was a, a f- first time experience. But then again, uh, of course, it makes a huge difference because, again, you can't you don't know what your client wants and you don't. And there is some information you can't get. And for ethical reasons, there are just a few steps that y- you can't go but for the rest of it, uh, and of course, it, it implicates that you have to challenge everything that the prosecution brings forward, which you may just as well do in, a, in, another, in other circumstances, but uh, in a trial in absentia, you don't really have the choice. You can't, you can't, for example, you can't agree on facts. This didn't make us very popular, you know, uh, not to admit that there was a terrorist attack and that many uh, people died and were injured and so on and so forth. Of course, but I cannot stand up and agree on facts that may have an implication for my client at a later stage, even on a, on a civil law level. And, and of course, that's a situation that's uh, you know, not, not always uh, easy to handle, but that's it. You know, there is, there's no compromise to make. There is maybe a compromise to make uh, when you decide whether to pre- present a defense case, yes or no. 
Our team was the only one uh, that presented a defense case, but also in very limited, uh, in a very limited parameters. We we just presented an, an expert and we presented a, a, a political witness. But of course, not having been able to talk to our client, there was no possibility of presenting factual witnesses, uh, an alibi defense, or anything alike. But I still think that it was, uh, it was uh, fair and right and definitely in the interests uh, of our client uh, to present the, def the defense case uh, as limited as it was, um, as we did for, for Mr. Onesi. And then you were asking me about, uh, about other trials and how different it is. Again, you know, very often, even if you have a client, the client is not very involved in what's going on in the courtroom. If the client follows your advice, which is like the best case scenario, then very often uh, you will not let your client testify. Uh, we don't use the, the term of testifying in, uh, in, in civil law, but you know what I mean. I mean, no, no explanation uh, with regards to the allegations. You will not let your client ask the witnesses questions, for example. You will not share the entire case file with the client. So it's really, I mean, you get the information from the client that you think is necessary to conduct the best defense, but very often you, you take a technical approach, and if I mean technical, it's just an analysis of the evidence, uh, regardless of what your client says. Because that's also not always very reliable, you know, I mean, or at least you shouldn't <laughs> rely uh, on, on what your client says if you don't have the possibility to conduct your own investigations and verify things. Yeah, so there are differences, but, uh, some, but, but in a way, sometimes even if you have a client, the client is much less implicated uh, than, than you would think. For me, personally, a huge difference was the fact of physically not having a person sitting next to me. And very often we had big debates in the courtroom and sometimes, you know, there were successful days or less successful days or uh, sometimes we got a good decision and sometimes less. And in a way, you, you know, you think about it two or three minutes and you say this is a good day or a bad day or you discuss it with colleagues and, you know, all the legal aspects of it. But it's not the same feeling because it doesn't have this immediate impact on the person sitting next to you and maybe his or her family or... Or whatever, and the same thing, of course, uh, when we were acquitted uh, a few weeks ago, um, it makes a huge difference if you have somebody sitting next to you and who would have been released on that day and and could rejoin uh, his or her family. So uh, I think this is an aspect, even though it's not, you know, it's 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 nothing legal, but um, but everybody who works in the in the in the criminal law world, uh, in a way. Uh, is, uh, well, as I said before, interested in, in, in human beings and human behaviors and, and the impact of, of, of a criminal trial uh, on the person you're presenting. And for me, there was really something missing, even though sometimes it's easier. It's easier without clients sometimes, of course. And it wasn't only for, for legal uh, representation. I know reporting on that trial was... A it was largely academic. It didn't help that all the evidence was super technical uh, phone uh, data. And then, yeah, in a courtroom, there were 
very few kind of live witnesses talking about their experiences. It was many, many experts about political situation and all that. And it's it makes it hard also as a journalist to report on it. And it makes it in a way hard to have the trial really be seen as, and kind of monitored in, in that way. I'm sure legal scholars do it. But uh, it's it was very complicated to follow. Very academic, uh, technical discussion. Ilaria, you wanted to say something? Yes, I think that we also shouldn't forget about something that actually happened back in May 2016 during this proceeding, that was the alleged death of one of the co-accused, Mustafa Badreddin, and the difficulties and the additional challenges that the tribunal had to decide this case in a moment in which the accused was not arrested, was not present, was not identified. At the same time, they had to decide whether to withdraw the charges or not based on the alleged death of that person. So it was even more difficult for the tribunal to decide whether to continue with the proceeding or not, given the fact that they couldn't, for instance, have any death certificate, they couldn't uh, do any DNA tests. So this was an additional challenge that I think that when the statute was created and trials in absentia were uh, included under Article 22, was not considered. So it was something that the legislator didn't really think about and didn't consider as one of the possible issues coming out from a trial in absentia like the one at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. So it's not just a question of the daily, I would say, procedural and substantial challenges of doing a trial in absentia, but also of the unexpected consequences, because life is life, right? So we can have defendants that can die, especially in these type of cases where there is there are terrorism-related charges. We have uh, a territory that is quite difficult, so we, we don't have the possibility to access certain parts of Beirut, for instance to get evidence of the death of this person. So there are additional challenges that trials in absentia definitely pose to tribunals, not just at international level, but also at national level, that I think we should consider for the future. Um, if we kind of take a more helicopter view, we were ta- you were talking about the statute uh, and the ICC it, it, that specifically doesn't uh, have trials in absentia. So... Are they kind of being phased out? Are they becoming less common? Or what is kind of the development of trials in absentia? Um, I think that looking at the most recent developments at the ICC, we still see a very strong bias and a very strong opposition to trials in absentia, at least as they are conducted at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, so total trials in absentia. However, Back in 2013, there has been a change in the rules of procedure and evidence of the ICC with the possibility for defendants themselves to waive the right to be present and to be excused from being present always at trial. So this is, I think, even if it looks like a small change, actually very important because to a certain extent opens the door to at least a type of partial in absentia during trial that so far has not been allowed at uh, the ICC because uh, it's Article 63 of the statute that requires the defendant to be present at trial and has, has been like constantly interpreted as it's a bar to trials in absentia. It's not possible to have trials in absentia at the ICC. There have been discussions this summer uh, about the possibility to have 
again, a form of in absentia proceeding at the ICC in the Banda case, if I'm not wrong. And again, there has been a controversy. This has sparked controversy because some judges would be more in favor of in absentia proceedings and others instead are totally reluctant and they don't really want to have trials in absentia because they fear that this might then open the Pandora box for trials in absentia in like at the ICC, but also more generally and spread it like over all the international criminal justice system. So I would say that it, they're not more common. They're definitely still controversial. So they've always been controversial since ever. They've always been debated, but they are not more common. They are usually referred to when there are issues, when the court is in trouble, when we cannot arrest people, when there are issues in also justifying very, very lengthy and sometimes quite expensive proceeding with no one there. So just waiting for someone either to you know, surrender or to be arrested. That's where then we start talking about in absentia proceedings. And I think that's wrong because in absentia proceedings shouldn't be looked at only when we have issues, when only we are in trouble, but they should be considered as an alternative proceeding with specific procedural safeguards that can be fair and that can be used for achieving justice. What about you, Natalie? Would you ever take on another case that uh, didn't have the client sitting next to you so that you could hug him when you get him off? Of course, you're always going to get your client off as a defence lawyer. Well, I, I don't know if that's going to happen uh, anytime soon, but I'm, I'm actually, you know, like taking a step back and uh, I never thought about trials in absentia really before I started to uh, to join the UNACE team at, at the SCL. But now I'm wondering if the people who who wrote the statute and allowed for the possibility of trial in absentia really had in mind what subsequently happened in Leitendam at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. Because my understanding uh, from, from colleagues uh, who come from jurisdictions that have trials in absentia, like, like France or the Lebanon, trials in absentia, even for these kind of important trials or for very serious crimes, exist, but they will always be quite short in view of the possibility of a retrial, whereas the trial at the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, again, in my view, was nearly conducted as if the accused uh, um, had been present in much more detail than it would have been necessary even if the accused had been present. You know, if you have like eight months of political evidence, uh, I'm not sure uh, that was really uh, helpful for the judges uh, to, to come to their decision. Yeah, so, so it's, I, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm completely against the concept of, of trials in absentia, especially if you, if you think about more and more cases of universal jurisdiction that are coming up before the domestic uh, courts, uh, including in Germany. For some suspects, it will be very hard, if not impossible, to get them here. So uh, would it assist, you know, to to find the truth, to find out what happened, permit uh, victims, you know, to get some kind of feeling of justice. I'm, I'm, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say that it couldn't be a sensible possibility, but it's going to take time. And I'm very curious to see actually uh, how the development goes on uh, at, at the ICC and where the submissions uh, or the ongoing submissions will lead to. It's probably also a political decision at the end of the day, because, of course, it has lots of implications on, on many different levels if you allow trials in absentia. Yeah, but it's, an, uh, it's an interesting to see how things will develop. Yeah. 
I think Hilaria wants to have the last word. Yeah, I, I totally agree on this point. And I also would say that historically speaking, if we go back into the history of the ICC and the drafting of the statute, in 1994, actually, the International Law Commission, when was drafting the statute's uh, articles, included the possibility of having twice in absentia limited to specific circumstances. This was Article 37 of that draft statute. And then, again, for political reasons, as we were saying with Natalie, this was gone. So many states opposed this idea. They didn't like it. And that's why when, then we ended up with Article 63 that requires the presence of the accused in the proceeding. But this idea was already there originally. So the, the, we didn't have any issues since the beginning with trials in absentia. We actually, there were discussions ongoing. The problem is then, as you all know, like the ICC is paid and funded by states. So there has to be a consensus in that sense by states as well, that they are the, the ones that are contributing towards the expenses of the courts. We can't simply disregard and just look at it from an academic, legal, theoretical perspective, disregarding the political willingness or lack of willingness to have trials in absentia at the ICC. Our um, final questions to you, either of you, is there anything that we should have asked that we didn't ask? Let's start with Natalie. I think Ilaria had the final say with the political aspect of trials in absentia, which I'm a big fan of showing that international courts have a lot of political aspects and we should uh, allow for that to happen and be frank about it. But so Natalie, is there anything that you think we should have um, put more of a spotlight on that we didn't? Oh, well, I think we, we put as, as much light uh, on the beast of trial in, abs in, in absentia as, as, as we could. Of course, you know, there are, there are a lot of uh, topics that for me are unresolved, like uh, the sentencing often, often accused in absentia or also the discussion of the right to appeal. Um, so there's more to discuss, but we're not going to focus on all of those aspects now. But yeah, sounds like there is still more that we that we could discuss. Our second um, uh, regular question is again for either of you, but maybe start with Ilaria. Um, do you have a failure that you would like to share with us that you've learned from? A failure about trusting absentia in my research. It could be <laughs> on any level that that uh, that you want to take it. Right. Uh, I think that uh, the failure that I perceive is very, very important we need to take into account in international community justice is the um, idea of thinking ahead. The idea of having a long-term um, plan for trials in absentia. Because the problem, and uh, this is what I think it's a problem with the Special Tribunal for Lebanon Statute, is not, having, is not the idea of having trials in absentia. The problem is that if you look at Article 22, is that it's very limited, very um, short-sighted. So it doesn't think about trials in absentia as something that might happen in the future and also how to deal with issues in the future. As Natalie was saying, what is going to happen with an appeal? What is going to happen with a retrial? Who's going to do the retrial? Because the tribunal is not a permanent court, it's a temporary court. So these are issues that I, when I was doing my research on in absentia proceedings, I, I found that were like really the main issues here. There's no really long-term plan for trials in absentia. They are, as usual, as I said before, they use only as an alternative when there are troubles. When there are issues, then you rely upon trials in absentia. But you don't think about them as a procedure 
that should be regulated in detail with a plan for the future. And Natalie, I don't want to characterize it as a failure, but we this, the idea is something that you've learned from. Now, you said in the beginning that you hadn't done in absentia trials before, and now you have done them. Would you do another one? Is this something that you learned from where maybe it's a little different than I thought and preconceived notions were shattered? I don't think I would refuse right away. I would say it was a very different experience, but it wasn't a bad experience. I also learned a lot, but maybe, yeah, maybe the failure is a bit of a, what we call a deformation professionnelle. I tend to defend everything that I do or the person that I'm representing, and maybe I should be more critical. You know, I also admire colleagues who say right away, trilips in absentia, this is unacceptable for me, uh, and who have a very clear idea and who are completely convinced that this is, you know, uh, a fundamental violation of fair trial rights and therefore nothing they will ever touch. I'm, I have a more cautious approach because I, I, at the outset I don't know and from the experience I'm made now and I know that many see it differently including my, my lead counsel Vincent Corcel-Labrousse, uh, I, I wouldn't say that the fair trial rights of our client were not respected seen in the setting of this tribunal. I mean, I could use the rules of procedure and evidence as I wanted, and they give me actually all the rights that I require to, to, de to defend somebody. And Ilaria, a final, final question. Uh, do you have anything that you've read recently, listened to recently, watched recently? It doesn't have to be related to international criminal law or your PhD or your work, whatever. Anything that you'd just like to recommend to our listeners? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I don't know, really. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been reading the um, latest two books of Philip Sands, and I would recommend anyone to read them because they are um, amazing. They are really, really great uh, books, and they really give you a sense of how, and this is because I'm an academic and a lawyer as well, how you can combine the two souls, being a practitioner on one side, as Philip Sands is, and also being an academic, and combining two souls and being able to really produce something that is based on your skills. So finding evidence, but then also being able to talk and write about it. Well, I would say actually three souls, because he's also got the soul of a journalist in my That's view, because, because, yeah. because of his podcast series, yeah. but we'll put the recommendation up. Natalie, is there anything on your bedside table, a book that you'd like to recommend or a TV series that you watch to get away from everything or another podcast? Actually, there is a, there is a book I'm just reading after having started two that I put away again because I didn't like them or they bored me. Now I'm finally, uh, I finally found a book uh, that I, I think is very t touching. It's uh, by uh, Sasha Stanisic in a place in the, in the former Yugoslavia. And uh, it's very poetic, actually. It's about... Uh, Um, it's called Where You Come From, and it's about uh, the first coincidence in your biography, which is actually where you were born and, and, and what happened afterwards. So I've, I just started to read it, uh, and, and so I, I, I can't tell you how it unfolds, but uh, I think it's very well writ written, it's poetic, and it raises a lot of, of interesting and, uh, yeah, and, and touching questions of life. Ah, I've, I read his uh, The Soldier and the Gramophone book because I'm a former Yugo literature and news junkie, so I read all those books. But that's a nice recommendation. I'll look that up and uh, see. Okay, thank you both very much for taking part. And uh, uh, we'll speak to you again, maybe on other subjects in the future. 
Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, and bye. Asymmetrical Haircuts is presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd still like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub, and we hope to return there soon. Music was by audionautics.com. We're available on all major podcast apps. Give us a rating and spread the word.